Welcome to the second PATC podcast. We really appreciate you listening. Public Agency Training Council is the country's largest and longest running provider of seminars for law enforcement and fire officials. I'm Mark Waterfill, your co-host along with David Broadway. I'm the president and owner of the company, and we're really happy that you are here. Uh, we'll have some wonderful guests in this podcast, uh, Jack Cambria is with us. And David, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? My name is David Broadway. I'm retired, 34 years in law enforcement. I was a local cop for about 10 years. Then when I went with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement for 24 years. And uh, during that period, I got to work in every um, every discipline or every, bu- every bureau except crimes against children and computer crimes. So um, I'm blessed to have a well-rounded career and also I'm adjunct at Western Carolina University and uh, PATC, which I'm very proud of. And I always enjoy meeting you folks that take the courses out there because I never, never leave a class without learning something myself. We're fortunate today. Uh, Mark, would you like to do the, do the honors? Jack, thanks very much for being here. Jack Cambria is an extraordinary instructor and has had a wonderful career in law enforcement Jack, why don't you tell our audience about your background? Hello, everybody, and thank you for inviting me to this. So I, like like uh, David, also a 34-year police veteran uh, out of the uh, New York City Police Department, or NYPD for short. Again, I had very, uh, very uh, different positions throughout my career. I started out doing uh, patrol work, answering those 911 calls like many of our viewers uh, do currently. From there, I went into the emergency service unit, which is New York City's version of the SWAT team. We don't call it SWAT. We call it emergency service because it's, it's, it's much more than just SWAT work. So it's true you'll go from one assignment of going through a door and a tactical application with the machine guns and the vests and the helmets and the battering rams to the very next job, taking a cat out of a tree. You know? So it's a very diversified unit. It's also a rescue unit as well. So if somebody sees fit to climb the top of the Brooklyn Bridge, for example, um, intending to commit suicide, it's the emergency service unit that would be tasked climbing up those girders, trying to interrupt that thinking process and saving that person from himself. So as I said, very diversified unit. And I did that in three different ranks, as a police officer, as a sergeant, and as a lieutenant, although not consecutively. I was also a police officer, sergeant, and lieutenant in the precinct as well, doing the patrol work, patrol officer, answering those 911 calls as a patrol supervisor, as a sergeant, and as a platoon commander, as a lieutenant. Uh, and then my last 14 years of my 34-year career, I spent as the commander of the hostage negotiation team. And that's what I, I teach for PATC. And I want to say I'm teaching for PATC roughly about between eight and nine years. So it's been a while now, hostage negotiations across the country. And, and Mark affords me the opportunity to do that. And the best part about that, of course, not only the teaching part of it, but also getting to uh, meet different police officers from throughout the country. So, in fact, uh, I'll be very soon traveling to Rio Rancho, New Mexico. So, again, all places I never might have been without being uh, associated with PATC. That's fantastic. Uh, Jack, you want to tell our audience about your experience with Blue Bloods and, and other oh. entertainment uh, consulting? Yes, okay. So, I've been involved, for those of you who know the television show uh, Blue Bloods, uh, it's on Friday evenings on CBS. It stars, of course, Tom Selleck. Um, some of our other audience members might know him as Magnum P.I. prior to Blue Bloods, Donnie Wahlberg, and a host of other you know, actors. And I've been involved as a, an assistant 
technical consultant on the show since it's pilot. In fact, just this past week, they uh, they renewed the show for their 13th season. So I've been involved with them for over those over all those years. And uh, in fact, I was even involved with the pilot. When, if you know the character Jamie, uh, by, by Lance, he's uh, he's a Sergeant Reagan now. And uh, when he was graduating from the police academy in New York City at Madison Square Garden, so I was there for that pilot program as well. So my friend, a very dear friend, I might add, uh, James Mustaforo, who you might not know the name, but you, if you watch the show with any regularity, you would probably know who James is. James plays the bodyguard of the actor Tom Selleck, Commissioner Frank Reagan. So whenever you see um, him out in public, James is walking right behind him. He's opening up the doors for him and those kind of things. So you would know him if you saw him. And James is the technical consultant for the show. And whenever James uh, would be doing the acting part of it, or he had to take a day off, he would call me up and Jack, can you cover for me? Because I'm doing the acting or I'm taking a day off. And if I was available, I would do that. So over the years, uh, I got to know all the actors, the writers, the producers, uh, uh, the directors. And when I retired, uh, this was uh, six years ago now, when I retired, it was a very slow news day, so it generated some media attention. I was the longest standing uh, commander of the hostage negotiations in the 14 years. They generated some news, news footage. And the director of this particular episode, I was on, actually on uh, Blue Bloods on uh, three different, I, I appeared as Lieutenant Jack Cambria on three separate episodes. But the first one I appeared on, um, when they did that ceremonial walkout and it generated that news attention, it came to the attention of uh, the director of that particular episode. Who happened to see it on the news? So he calls up my friend Jim. Jim, I just saw Jack on the news. It's the last day. Jim said, yes, I know. In fact, Jim was even at that walkout for me. Because, you know, we should do something for Jack. We should uh, write in a scene uh, in our episode of a retirement party just to honor Jack for his many years of service. You think he'd like to do that? So Jim says, well, I can ask him. So Jim calls me up and it took me like a millisecond to say, okay, I'll do that. So um, I got to tell you how it works. So that was supposed to be a, a non-SAG part. SAG is the Screen Actors Guild, so the Actors Union. And it was supposed to be a non-speaking part. So all I was supposed to do when Tom Selleck came into the room, and he congratulated me on my retirement on the show, all I was supposed to do was shake his hand and smile. So when I do it, um, Tom Selleck, and, and for that, non-SAG, non-speaking, the rate of pay for eight hours was $136, right? So obviously, I wasn't doing it for the money. And that's before taxes, right? So I wasn't doing it for the money. Uh, as we rehearsed it, Tom Selleck, who knows me all these years, when I smile at him and shake his hand, he goes, Jack, that doesn't feel right. Wouldn't you say something to the police commissioner if he came to your party? I said, well, yeah, that would, that would be huge, right? He said, okay, well, what would you say? Well, I don't know, uh, commissioner. Thank you for coming to my party. Because I like it. Tom Selleck says to the director, hey, John, Jack's going to have a speaking part. Okay, Tom, whatever you say. So with that one line, thank you for coming to my party, and we'll do $136 to $1,250. And then every time they rebroadcast it on, on national television, like it was a rerun, another $1,250 in royalty. So thank you, Mr. Selleck, for my retirement gift. So he knew exactly what he was doing. Well, it was an extraordinary line. Uh, I remember seeing it. I, I laughed. I cried. It was, uh, it was excellent. <laughs> David, do you have uh, questions for Jack? Oh, I got all kinds of questions. I like that gratuity thing, man. That's a big jump. That's free lunch any day of the week. I have multiple questions for you, Jack. Uh, being as as we got the feedback for the uh, broadcast, 
being a talkative cop myself when I was on the street, I, I, you know, I love talking to people and things like that. When you look at and evaluate someone, I think we talked earlier again, how many years did you have to be on NYPD before you could even apply for hostage negotiation team? Well, it evolved, um, David. So um, you had to be on the, job, on the job for five years before you would even be considered for the emergency service unit. And then, as I said, I spent a total of 16 years with the, with the emergency service. I think uh, hostage negotiation work takes on more of a mature role in policing, if you can understand that, where you've kind of gotten yes. uh, your early, early days of policing, uh, you know, the cops and robbers syndrome, running and chasing people down. You kind of been there, done that, and got it out of your system a little bit. Where now you're in a position, a more mature role, by the, what I mean by that, is um, to now try to talk to people and resolve conflict with your work before tactical force becomes necessary. So ultimately, law enforcement is about the use of force, but you don't have to start at that highest continuum, which could be deadly physical force. You start at the lowest, which is communication, mere presence, and then you, you have to escalate. You can start from that point on. But you start with the simple concept of, of communicating and trying to resolve conflict with your words. So I was on um, I was on the police department for I guess about 20 years before I actually got the position of being the commander of the hostage negotiation team. But it, it evolved because uh, as emergency service, oftentimes you're the first people on the door, first people to respond to an incident. And you, you usually start by talking through the door because the SWAT teams do not want to go through doors because there's a 50-50 chance at best. Whenever you go through a door, getting hurt or worse, maybe getting killed. So if you can have that individual come out from that hostile environment, that means that you do not then have to go in. And you go home at night. In fact, I like to say a lot that uh, probably one of the most important like, things that I did as a member of the hostage team was keep police officers safe. So if I was successful in my negotiation strategy and it enabled that individual on the other side of that door, whether it be a perpetrator, a hostage state, or someone who's mentally ill from coming out, well, what did that mean then? It meant that we, the police, did not have to go into that hostile environment. But we know in police work, every time you go through a door and a tactical application, there's a 50-50 chance at best of coming out safely. And nobody likes 50-50 odds, right? Now, the emergency service unit, now again, the SWAT guys, they don't necessarily go along with that way of thinking. But I can tell you this, that their wives do. That if I can negotiate that individual out, then they do not have to go in. Because they do want to go in. You know, they have that mindset. That's their conditioning. But I don't want them to go through that door. Because I can talk to it from a qualified, uh, qualified, qualitative nature. Because I've done that work for 16 years. That was the best thing I think I did uh, as a member of the, of the hostage negotiation team. That's interesting, Jack. Uh, Jack, is it, it really, it's really fascinating because you parallel me some. I was on the first anti-terrorist uh, fugitive squad for the state of Florida, and it was the rough and tumble guys, you know, do dynamic entries and things like that. Sometimes they wondered why I stayed behind and talked to people. And, and now I want to segue into what you just talked about the talking to people down and the talking to people in, in, in a way where you, you talk to someone where they, you know, it's two things I, I tell people in communications. You're either interesting or interested. And most of the time we're giving them the interested listening, the active listening ear. And uh, it's really fascinating that you touched on that. And that's something close to my heart is because um, I loved interviewing and interrogation. I loved um, interviewing witnesses, but I also loved talking to the people on the street before there was a problem. And some of our rookies, I'd tell them real quick, I want to have some FaceTime with everybody I can when in that zone before it hits a fan. 
So when I come up, I'm a fixture there. One of the things um, I like to do is establish through um, making it important about someone. So as a hostage negotiator, Jack, would you say when you looked at somebody to evaluate someone, how would you look at that person? Would you would you have long conversations with them in an interview room or or how would you say uh, how would you go about filtering out someone that you want on your unit? Well, as far as a negotiator, um, there was a process. When I first came to go over the unit, that was back in 2001, uh, I was going through the applications that were already on file before I got there, and I saw a lot of the officers uh, didn't have a whole lot of time or job experience with the NYPD. I'm talking about two years or three years. And for me, uh, as I mentioned earlier, for me, it uh, takes on a more, more of a mature role in policing. So I, I decided to put a criteria in place where the, where the uh, candidates applying for the hostage team had to have at least 12 years' experience with the NYPD before they'd be seriously considered. Now, granted, a lot of agencies out there cannot do this. You know, they're smaller agencies. They don't have the luxury of being able to be very selective. They are selective, but, you know, they have a limited pool of those that you can't draw upon. Where I, in the NYPD, we have 36,000 uniformed members in the New York City Police Department. So I was able to be a little selective. So I, I put that criteria in place of 12 years. Because the 12 years, my thinking was, particularly in, in, in the NYPD, the amount of volume we generate every single day in the city of New York, where the population is eight and a half million people, after that, another four million people come into the city every single day you know, for work or business, going to the theater, uh, vacations. So on average, we're dealing with about 14 million people every single day in New York City Police Department. And with that 12-year criteria, my thinking was it's going to give that candidate a very strong foundation in policing, where they would know by over those many years, what people would respond to who are in crisis. So, for example, uh, maybe I shouldn't say that again. That was not effective the last time, as opposed to let me revisit what I said the last time to this other person, because that was effective. That's a great so point. You, uh, so you develop an intuitive sense of what people might respond to who are in crisis. Then the second reason for that 12-year criteria, again, by my way of thinking about it, was it's going to put, us, uh, put that candidate at a certain age group, probably around 35 years or so, give or take a little bit. And probably at 35 years, one would know what it means to have experienced the emotion of love at one point in their life, to know what it means to have been hurt in love at one point in their life, to know what it means to know success, and perhaps most importantly, know what it means to know failure. I think you must know failure in your life if you hope to know success. And the greater the failure that you experience, then the greater the life lesson you also experience as well, if you care to learn from that. So I think failure is a pathway to success. So based on, on that, um, uh, and when I implemented that, that new policy that I put in place, that 12-year criteria, I seem to have gotten a, a better, better um, quality negotiator who, uh, who had the life stories, the very best, the very best negotiators out there, bar none, bar none of those with the life stories. And we all have life stories. Where I can now put you in front of a door or on a phone with somebody and as the negotiators listening, they can come back and say, you know what? I can talk to you about that. I've been hurt in love more times than I care to admit to the audience, but I can talk to you about that. And I have an under, a certain understanding, maybe never exactly what you might be feeling, but I have an underlying, underlying experience, uh, some experience of what you might be talking about. And that helps the process of de-escalating a crisis. So the one thing that all these incidents that we get involved with as negotiators are that they are all, all of them, are emotionally driven, so driven by emotion. And it's our job as negotiators to try to manage that emotion by trying to bring it down to the scale. So when emotion is high, rationality levels are low. And our job as negotiators is to try to manage that emotion by trying to bring it down. And then at the same time, by default, 
the rational side is coming up where we have now a more balanced state where we can now start offering options that we may consider and even accept. But certainly not when emotions are high. Whenever we make a decision in high emotion, then more times than not, it's a wrong decision or a bad decision because it's made out of emotion and not more, not more from a cognitive sense, but rather from emotion. So that's our job is trying to manage those levels, and then we can start getting a dialogue. But that takes time, and it's different for everybody. I bet. Uh, can, can you kind of uh, give our audience an idea of during the time you were the chief hostage negotiator in New York, what portion of the incidents were domestic as opposed to uh, terrorism or as opposed to financial hostage situations or other types of critical incidents? The overwhelming majority of those were, um, were domestic. It was start, and I'm talking about hostage taking specifically. We had three different categories of response, Mark. Uh, we had the hostage situations, and I'm going to get back to that in a second. The second one was the barricaded situations where somebody is alone, and I'll get into that in just a little bit. And then the third category was the uh, suicidal jumps. And you might be surprised to hear with uh, all those different types of responses, we averaged about 45 assignments per month, per month. The average hostage team across the country, and I know this because I teach around the country, is maybe, uh, maybe eight to 10 a year, a year. And we are averaging 45 assignments per month. So uh, we are a very busy lot. But it, with the hostage situations, the majority of those are domestic in nature. It starts out, you know, maybe with an argument between two parties, spouses, or, you know, significant others, whatever it might be, uh, rises to another level. Maybe there's alcohol involved, drugs involved. Comes to the attention of neighbors who call the police and when we respond, we're at that position where emotions are running very high. I'm not coming out. I'll kill my wife. And okay, we're going to talk to you about that. And over time, again, we'll usually have a, a good resolve. With the barricaded situations, again, that's when an individual is alone and acting out. There's two categories of that. There's the barricaded criminal. We call them perp, perpetrated, barricaded perps, we call them. Those are the individuals that are wanted by the police. There's a warrant for their arrest. And when the detectives knock at the door to arrest them, I'm not coming out. I'm not going back to jail. I will shoot it out with the police before I come out. Enter the hostage negotiator. Okay, we're going to talk to you also. And then the other category of barricaded individuals are the emotionally disturbed or the mentally ill who are now no longer responsible for their actions, acting out in a manner which is dangerous to themselves. And uh, we're going to talk to them as well. Try to rearrange their thinking process. And then uh, that last category of response are the suicidal jumpers. So as you know, in New York City, we have many high-rise buildings. So either from the top of a high-rise on, on the on girt of the bridge. And if they are still standing when we arrive, then we have an excellent chance of getting it resolved. If they are still standing when we arrive, it's automatically telling us two things. First thing is telling us that there's a part of them that wants to die today. They're standing on the girt of the bridge or on the top of the building. And then the second thing it tells us, at the same time, there's a part of them that wants to live today. They're standing on the girder of a bridge on the top of a building. They haven't jumped yet. So we have at least 1% to start building on. And make no mistake about it. And I, I had, I've had cops, even cops tell me this over the years. If, if they haven't jumped yet, they just want attention. Well, let me tell you, if you say the wrong thing and you handle this, handle this in an insensitive fashion, you just reinforce what they're feeling. You see, I was right. Nobody cares. Thank you, officer. And they'll jump. So it's a, it takes great sensitivity to handle a situation like that, to, you know, again, rearrange their thinking process from what they want it to be to what we want. I bet. I bet. Now, you teach uh, hostage one and two for PATC. Uh, what are your teaching goals or objectives for students who take that class? 
So the phase one and two, as we call it in PATC, that's the basic 40-hour class. I also teach, uh, of course, um, off the, uh, the phase three, which is the advanced class. But the phase one and two, the basic class, this is uh, with the assumption that the, these are brand new students to be negotiated, not actually negotiated yet. A lot of their agencies require them to take first the phase one and two in order to you know, come get the basics, basic tenets of negotiation. And I take them through all that. All the fundamentals of that, uh, we go through um, uh, active listening skills. We talk about, you know, response protocols, response to jumpers. I just mentioned a, a little while ago. And we get into all of those. We do uh, case analysis, different case studies. So they get a, uh, an inner understanding of what hostage negotiations and they, where they have to remove themselves a little bit from that police role, that punitive police role that sometimes police officers must be, must be, uh, in order to you know, to gain compliance with somebody about lowering emotion. And I, we, we go through all of that. We do uh, uh, role play scenarios as well so they can practice their new craft in a clinical environment so where they can make their mistakes if they have to. Make them here. And we're going to talk about it. And then when you go out in the field, you'll be in a better place. Yeah, I've already, I already did that in PATC class. Somewhat conditioned to that. And it's a very intensive, interactive class. And, you know, one of the things I do... Uh, you know, you'll talk to somebody, and all you folks are instructors, so you can relate to this problem. You, know, you look at somebody, you, you're talking, and you're, you're scanning the whole class, and you're locking on one person. And as soon as you look at them in the eyes, they look away. So I point that out. I said, if you're shy about looking somebody in the eye when they're speaking to you, well, then maybe this is not the class for you. As a hostage negotiator, you have to be engaged, involved. And David touched on it earlier that you have to ask, uh, you know, intelligent type questions, smart questions. And you have to see, people have to see that you're interested. I think it was the word you used, David. Um, that you're interested in what they're saying. And the best way to do that is have eye contact and, and, you know, and show that you are really interested and concerned about what they're saying. But if you're looking away when someone's talking to you, you're not going to be able to. I bet. How about the Hostage 3 class? That's a separate week-long class. Of, and what do students learn in that class? So the Phase 3 class or the Advanced class, it, it builds on what they had learned in the basic class. More involved, uh, more advanced uh, issues that we get involved with, uh, more uh, intensified case studies that we speak about. Uh, role plays are more intense. Uh, it really challenges them and reinforces what they already know. The first day, I, in fact, I do a review of a lot of the issues that we spoke about in the phase one and two, um, because a lot of students are coming from different instructors. So I don't know exactly what the other instructors, instructors might have been teaching them. So I do a review uh, on the first day. They know that they, should, they, they don't really look at it as something they already had, rather reinforcing what they already know. In law enforcement training, we must reinforce constantly what we already know. Right? Otherwise, you become complacent, you forget, you know, and this just reinforces all of that. So it's just a much more um, involved class, uh, again, to build on the skills that they develop during their first phase one and two. And they get, they get a lot more interactive uh, training as far as uh, role playing, being more comfortable in their role as negotiators. Fantastic, fantastic. And students who attend those or then uh, receive a certification from uh, PATC, which then they're also very interested in renewing after a few years. It's a very, very popular course, and we really appreciate our relationship with you on this class. David, uh, would you have a question for Jack? Oh, I sure do. I've got too many questions for Jack, to tell you the truth. We could go the day. But um, I, I'd like to ask you this, Jack. Did you ever get into a situation where you handed someone off? 
let's say there was a, you know, a, a phrase used or, or maybe an accent or something like that, where the person just didn't, con did, you were, you were the assigned um, negotiator at that moment, but they weren't making that connection with you. Did you ever hand anybody off? Oh, many times. Yeah, many times. And my job as the uh, team leader was also to assess the performance of the negotiator that was on the phone. So whether it be me, I tried not to negotiate as much because uh, then who'd be watching me, you know? But oftentimes I'd, I'd get there first. So it was mine. I'd start the process and I would negotiate. But um, yeah, I likened it to the analogy of the uh, baseball coach who where the pitcher towards the ending of the game is starting to get tired and his arm is getting tired and he starts giving him hits now. And at one point that coach yes. had to make a decision as to whether or not to replace that pitcher. And the way I would do it, if I saw one of my negotiators was not establishing rapport so well with that individual, I'd stop it. Tell me, call him right back. And then I try to work with that negotiator, and, and not just me, the team. We're the hospital negotiation team. So the team would, would offer suggestions and, um, and try to maybe have him retract his, his approach. And if it still didn't work after he got the individual back on the phone, then I would have to be that baseball coach and remove that individual from the mound and bring somebody else on. Makes plenty of sense, um, Jack. Exactly. That's what I was yeah. looking for. Yeah. So you have to kind of just make that assessment, what people respond to. Most people will respond to respect. However, not everybody, you know. So we have to see, take it on, a, on an individual basis and see how people are responding to that negotiator, whether it be me or whether it be one of my negotiators. Recognize at one point, well, it's just not working. So maybe it's personalities of the two uh, not working. So we, we change the dynamic. The one thing that we have on our side as negotiators is time. Time is on our side. We can go, in theory at least, we can go for days. I was once on that negotiation less than 50 hours. 50 hours. I was there for 20 of those 50 hours. The individual was happening to have a bipolar disorder, and he was in his manic stage for those 50 hours. Only requiring little five-minute catnaps, and he was up again. And the problem with that individual was that he had a, he had a gun by himself, holding himself hostage, so to speak. So we did not want to be in a position, position if we went through that door to have to shoot him to keep him from shooting himself. Yeah. Makes no sense, right? So we had to go the long road with that. And with that particular incident, we went through 17 different negotiators. Finally, again, time was on our side. We finally wound down to a point. He probably started, you know, cycling down from his manic stage a little bit. And finally, he just gave it up after 50 hours. So that's the theory, at least. Uh, and the one thing that we have going for us as negotiators is that experience base. So we've done this before, whereas that first time hostage taker, first time barricaded subject, first time suicidal individual on that bridge have never maybe done this before. So they're frightened and they're afraid. So they, they have to depend on our credibility to get them through their misfortune. And that's how it usually works. We've done that before. Well, Jack, I really want to thank you so much for your time, your relationship with Public Agency Training Council. Uh, for those of you who are listening, you can look at pa2c.com and find Jack's classes there on our schedule page. He teaches throughout the country for us and does just a wonderful job. David, thanks for being here with this episode. You can send uh, questions or comments to our podcast email. And that is patcpodcast1 at gmail.com. Uh, Jack, again, thank you so much. And David, thank you so much. It was a wonderful episode. One.